Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. This podcast is sponsored by New Relic. To track and optimize your application performance, go to rubyrogues.com slash newrelic. This show is sponsored by Heroku Postgres. They're the largest provider of Postgres databases in the world and provide the ability for you to fork and follow your database just like your code. There's easy sharing through data clips or just for your data, and to date, they have never lost a byte of data. So go and sign up at postgres.heroku.com. This episode is sponsored by JetBrains, makers of RubyMine. If you like having an IDE that provides great inline debugging tools, built-in version control, and intelligent code insight in refactorings, check out RubyMine by going to jetbrains.com ruby. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 108 of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have James Edward Gray. I'm back from the cold, wet place. Katrina Owen. Hello, hello. Josh Susser. Hi, good morning. And apparently I live in the cold, wet place. Avdi Grimm. Hello from Pennsylvania. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. And this week we're going to be talking about some of the trends that we see in the Ruby community. Now, James suggested this. And so I'm going to let him kind of explain what we're going to be talking about. And then we'll go from there. Yeah, so uh, while I was traveling, I, I always try to make a point of meeting the Rubyists along the way. Uh, and I, I did that uh, again uh, while I was in Great Britain, which was awesome. I had lunch with Peter Cooper. Thanks, Peter. And um, I had dinner with London RB and the, uh, uh, sorry, I think it's oh, uh, London Ruby Users Group and uh, the London Rails Girls, uh, which was great. And while I was there, I met Tom Stewart who we're going to have on the show later because he's great. Uh, but he asked me a, a good question. Of He said to me, he said, you know, you go to these conferences, you do the Ruby Rogues, uh, you're, you're deep in the community. What are the trends you see happening? And I told him what I see, and he told me what he saw, and, and we discussed that. And it was a really great conversation, and I enjoyed it. So I thought we'd uh, play that same game today. So I'm putting the question to all of you, what do you see as trends in the community? One of the things that I've seen sort of over the past 18 months or so is much more of an interest in uh, functional style of programming. Uh, there was a talk by Gary Bernhardt at RubyConf called Boundaries, where he introduced his idea of faux OP, which builds on his destroy all software screencast called Core, uh, what was it, Imperative Core? No, Functional Core Imperative Shell. Uh, and I've also seen that there are a lot of other talks that are talking about functional principles for Rubyists or for object-oriented people. So, Katrina, that was one of the trends that Tom brought up, exactly that one. Uh, yeah, it, I, I agree. I think we're seeing lots of it. And um, Jessica Kerr gave a, gave a great talk at Ruby Midwest uh, called Functional Principles uh, for OO Development. And uh, it's easily one of the most accessible functional programming talks I've ever seen. Uh, really getting down to the core principles and how they still apply and in uh, object orientation and stuff like that. And I thought it was very good. And we're definitely going to have her on the show. Yeah, I, I did like her explanation of, of that. I, I think that I mean, yeah, I've definitely been noticing that trend of digging into functional programming to see what we can learn from it in the OOP world. And I like Jessica's talk because I think it actually made it uh, more connected to how you do OOP, uh, which a lot of the functional talks, I think, just sort of missed the boat on that. It's like, you know, it's like, well, there was like Rich Hickey's talk last year at RailsConf. 
which like was off to a great start about functional and object oriented, but then it was, uh, I, th- I think it took a wrong turn in the middle somewhere, but we don't need to go into that too much today. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, there's, de- I think that's definitely a big trend that well, I, G- Gary's take on it, I think is really interesting. And it's sort of like, um, Michael feathers had a similar sort of, uh, what is it? Objects above functions below. That's what he called it. Yeah. I've, I've seen a lot of, uh, people doing things where they also adopt uh, certain aspects of the functional languages like immutability or just, I'm trying to think of some of the other principles there, but you know, where they, they build it in and uh, you know, see where it takes them, even if it's just an exercise, but a lot of times it then informs their OOP code, even though it's not uh, technically an object oriented technique. I think it, do you think this is kind of um happening because of the recent rise in popularity of things like Scala and Clojure and stuff like that? You think that's what's driving this? My guess is that it has a lot to do with JavaScript. Ah, interesting. Interesting. Uh, well, I mean, I mean yeah, what, what is it, Atwood's Law? He says uh, you know, any software that can be written in JavaScript eventually will be written in JavaScript. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, I think, you know, JavaScript is kind of eating the world right now. And it's, you know, in addition to being kind of an object-oriented language, it's also kind of a functional language. I like the uh, way you said kind of twice there. <laughs> well, it's kind of in the middle, right? Yeah, it is. <laughs> yes, it is. Kind of a weird hybrid, right? Yeah, it, it, it's not a fully functional language, and it's also not fully object-oriented, like, unless you squint your eyes really hard. <laughs> so, uh, but I think that the... It, there's there's definitely enough functional programming in JavaScript to be able to do interesting functional stuff. And people have had to learn about stuff like lexical scoping and dynamic scoping and, you know, partial application, you know, all those great things that you get in functional programming. So, right, so that's just my guess is that people started to get exposed to that stuff in JavaScript and then they got interested and then they wanted to actually learn how it worked. Yeah, because languages like Haskell have been around, you know, quite a while. And I mean, they have their kind of following, but I, I don't feel like they're as big or as current as, as like Clojure is, you know, even though, even though Haskell is technically more pure, you know, and stuff, it, it never really seemed to like sweep the mind share or anything. It seems like functional programming has traditionally been something that's very academic. And I mean, the only, the only large scale language that I've seen is, is, uh, I guess, Erlang's use in telecommunications. Yeah, that's a great example. And it's, it too, right? Has been around forever. I mean, it's, it's very robust. Like you say, it's used in telecommunications where, you know, it's critical to be able to run forever and not die and stuff. But, but really it's had kind of a small, smaller side following and hasn't seemed to to sweep like like now we're really seeing the functional influences press in i mean even in the changes of ruby itself right we've got like lazy enumeration and stuff like that you know where it seems uh currying came in mm-hmm. in ruby 1.9 stuff like that yeah. okay so uh, do we think this is a useful trend yes yeah i think so okay in, in what ways i mean what is it what is it what's the benefit of learning more about functional programming as you do object-oriented programming in Ruby? Well, I think, first of all, you're just expanding your um, skills and your capabilities is always going to be a useful thing. And because fu- functional and programming paradigms are very, very useful in certain types of 
um, problems, solving certain types of problems. I think that it will expand people's ability to solve other types of problems creative creatively. Well, the other thing is, is that I see, you know, we talked about, you know, currying and we have lazy evaluation and things like that that have come into the Ruby programming language itself. And uh, those things can be useful as well. And so, you know, just, just the tools that we have get better because people are exploring these other areas of programming languages. Not to mention it's easier to test. Well, I, I think the other thing that's interesting is that the, the genesis of object-oriented programming comes from functional programming. So that's where, that's where it has its roots. That I, I think, you know, Simula and Smalltalk 72 and, you know, the, the very earliest of object-oriented languages were very much like functional languages that had a mutable state stuck on in objects. So, yeah, my, one, of, one, of my, one of my favorite tricks in, in Lisp is to build objects using closures, which is probably worth a worth a blog post one of these days but it's a fun pattern yeah that's that's a very common pattern in javascript is mm -hmm. you build your objects that's the only way you can actually get quote-unquote private um, attributes or private uh, methods or functions yeah hide them in a closure yep yeah. one other thing that's related to this that i found interesting is that i've gone to several talks where they're not adopting necessarily features or functionality from other languages, but they're actually hooking into it. And so um, one that I remember from a few years ago was, I'm trying to remember who gave the talk, but basically it was a, a messaging system that sent messages across uh, networks and stuff, and it used Erlang to do it. And I've seen other systems that uh, they, they kind of hybridize things with JavaScript, and uh, you use Node.js for some things, and and uh, Rails or Ruby for something else, either as different endpoints on their same web application or using JavaScript to handle the eventing um, for things that work better in, a, in an evented system versus um, things that work well in things that are more procedural like Ruby. You know, I think that's a good point and maybe a, a, actually a separate trend altogether is uh, I, I would say we seem to be moving to a more polyglot type structure. I mean, it's it's common for us to use Node.js to run our uh, servers, right? Or, or things like that. It, it seems like we're branching out more. Do you think? I was talking to Anthony Eden of DN Simple a couple weeks ago, and he was telling telling me about like the different languages that he uses, and it's le at least Ruby. I mean, that's kind of where he started off. And then Erlang, and also Go. And that's not a big company. It's not GitHub. I mean, there are, what, right. two people working there? Right. Yeah, I mean, isn't, uh, what's that uh, 37 Signals server for... Um, Campfire? No, is it POW? Oh, POW, mm -hmm. yes. Yeah. yeah, but that's Node, right? It's written isn't in that? Node, yep. Yeah. I think he uses NAC. Yeah, it seems like we're seeing more and more of that, that, uh, you know, it's accepted that that we'll just use lots of different tools for whatever seems to be a good fit here. Okay, so there's the good fit argument, but there's also the laziness argument. <laughs> and you know, if you look at uh, something like the asset pipeline in, in Rails, that, that actually ha requires a JavaScript runtime to do some of the work. And it actually doesn't need to be based on a JavaScript runtime, it's just that when, when the feature was done, that was the simplest way for them to get it implemented. And 
I think that they made, you know, my, my opinion is that they made a bad choice about that and introducing that dependency because it made the Rails core team a little bit easier or it made their work on the feature a little bit easier and made it way harder for everybody else in the world who's using Rails. That's an interesting point. So what you're saying is, and, and Matt's has talked about this, right? He's talked about how Ruby is very English-like, and sometimes that makes the internals of Ruby very complicated because different things mean, you know, different uh, things in certain contexts, and Ruby seems to just kind of almost know the difference, you know, of whether or not you're dividing by something or defining a regular expression, you know, and, and um, he says that if that makes his job harder, that's okay, right? Because he just has to develop the language once and get it all working, but then we use it all the time. Yeah, yeah, that, that's, that's the point that I was making. <laughs> it's an interesting thing, though, like, I mean, so in, in defense of the asset pipeline, you know, how, how ubiquitous is JavaScript these days? It seems like it's almost everywhere, right? I mean, most modern computers uh, do include a JavaScript runtime, except maybe servers, right? Where you're typically deploying to, then you have to you have to go out and grab it if you want it. But I mean, Postgres ships with a JavaScript runtime now, right? Yeah, that's wow. true. Well, yeah, like like I said, JavaScript is eating the world. I, I'm not the first person to say that. But I think that some languages are, they have, you know, because of the, the history of the evolution of the language or just what it gets used for commonly, some languages have a better tool set for solving particular kinds of problems. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, like, you know, Erlang is great for messaging and Ruby is great for, you know, gluing things together. Say. Well, JavaScript, yeah. I, I, correct me if I'm wrong, but in the asset pipeline, it's actually used to parse JavaScript, right? Because they do like the minimization of JavaScript. Is that, is that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, but I, I believe the what they're doing there is not something that actually requires a JavaScript runtime. It, it's really just string manipulation kind of stuff. Hmm. Gotcha. The, yeah, but I, the, the CoffeeScript compiler is written in CoffeeScript and compiled to JavaScript. So you need a runtime if you're using CoffeeScript especially. Right, um, but it, yeah, but then if, they just hook it in. Right, but if your assets in the asset pipeline don't include any JavaScript or or even any CoffeeScript, I guess, th then you, I mean, you still need the the JavaScript runtime, I believe. So that's kind of a. I think that's kind of a failing of Ruby's uh, dependencies. I've run into that issue before with Highline, where like we would prefer to work with TermIOS because everything's easier and better that way. But if I put a term iOS dependency on there, then I run into trouble when people try to install it on Windows where that's not easily available and stuff like that. Yeah. So. Yeah. Okay, so, so the, the, the point that I was trying to make, though, is that the polyglot approach to things, I think, is often great. Uh, it's like we got a we had a great talk on this uh, like two years ago, Iko Garuko, um, Blake Mizrani, who wrote Sinatra, gave a talk about being polyglot and all the different languages that they use at uh, Heroku. So that's a that's a great example of using the right tool for the job, but I think that that my point was that there's this other side of that, which is people reach for the familiar tool, the one that they that they know well or they have experience with, and I think a lot of times that's a great way to make a choice about which technology to use. But if you're doing that just because you don't want to bother learning something else that may be a better fit for the for the problem you're solving, then that gets you in trouble. Mm -hmm. So, that's a good 
That's just my old curmudgeon uh, speaking. <laughs> okay, so what other trends have we seen? Well, I can I can point one out that I've been seeing, and that is NoSQL. Yeah, it's big, right? A lot of people talking about NoSQL. It's very true, and yeah, different I, ways of storing data. Yeah, can I'm really ex I'm really excited about Maglev. That's my favorite NoSQL. Katrina, what were you going to say? <laughs> yeah. I was I was going to say rather than NoSQL, could we just say non-relational data stores? Yeah. 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 Is that the politically correct term for NoSQL? I don't know. It seems it seems odd to me to call it NoSQL when there's there are a lot more ways of storing and retrieving data than using SQL. I don't know. It seems like an inverse uh, de definition. Yes, that like SQL even came first, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> right. It's a, yeah. It, sh it shows you um, how much relational databases own the the web development world or even just the development world in general that, you know, there's SQL and then there's everything else. It's, it's obviously one, right? Mm -hmm. We even see relational databases hopping on this trend, right? Look at Postgres uh, with all the different things it includes. It can do inverted indexes for searching like Sphinx or uh, HStore is almost kind of a built-in mini document database or it's XML parsing can be used in a similar way, or now it includes a JavaScript runtime engine so it can store JSON and stuff, you know. Yeah, the, it, it, it is really interesting. The other thing that's interesting about Postgres is that it actually includes a pass-through capability so that you can pass the request through to other systems like MongoDB or uh, whatever you're using. Um, another thing that's really interesting to me is that I've seen a lot of people moving off of Memcache, which has been around forever, um, and onto Redis for their um, for their caching. I've seen this as well, and it, one of the things that I'm curious about, I haven't used Redis very much, um, but I accidentally discovered in the worst way possible that there's no, like, keys don't automatically expire. Like, if you fill up your, your Redis, right. it doesn't seem like the oldest keys just kind of fall out, uh, mm -hmm. which was not my expectation. So, so this is actually a trend that I've heard of from several people, is misusing Redis. Misusing That's, Redis as a trend. I like it. Yes. Oh, yeah. That's correct. I, I actually am pretty familiar with the Memcache Redis scenario. So Redis is great, and I love Redis, and it does lots of different things. But using it as a cache, like Memcache is, is really dumb, in my opinion. Um, because like Katrina says, you can't, it's not as easy to just set a boundary. And what's way worse is Redis's expiration of keys is not near as intelligent as Memcache's expiration of keys. Um, whereas Memcache will favor the stuff that hasn't been hit in a long time. Whereas in Redis, if I recall correctly, a read has no effect on the time to live or, or things like that. So yeah, I, in my opinion, Memcache is still by far the better caching system. But Redis has other features that make it valuable, in my opinion. Yeah, but I've also heard people, you know, uh, swearing up and down that MongoDB is the best thing ever for anything ever, ever. And, uh, you know, I my, my thing is, is I, I look at them and I've played with some of them. And I found that if you have different types of data, then you can play to the different strengths of some of these systems. But MongoDB doesn't answer everything, just like relational databases don't answer everything. Oh, come on. There's there's no silver bullet technology that answers everything. I'm going to write a database system, and I'm going to call it silver bullet. The problem with silver bullets is maybe you're the werewolf. 
<laughs> I am not a werewolf. <laughs> That's what all the werewolves say. I'm just an ordinary villager, really. <laughs> this kind of seems to go with the polyglot trend, right? The polyglot trend seems to apply to tools, languages, databases, everything. And I mean, we have we have books about that, right? The seven languages in seven weeks, seven databases in seven weeks, stuff like that. I think it's kind of this overall trend of picking all of it up. And I, I'm inclined to agree with Katrina about how, you know, we're learning new techniques because it be, just makes us better able to solve problems. And I think that's generally a good, a good thing. The other obvious trend that's been going on for a couple of years is uh, rich applications in JavaScript in the browser. Yes. So, that, I mean, we, yeah, that's we have, the one that makes me think I need to retire. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, so, so, I mean, now we have Backbone and Ember and Angular. I mean, yeah, Angular. Knockout. And, yeah, um, all of these. And then so, we've got some that have been around for quite a bit longer, like Dojo. There's a ton of stuff out there. Yeah, and and well, um, well, Ember came from what was it, Sprout Core, which has been around for years. So yeah, that, and and I think that the community is still kind of figuring out what's a what's a really effective way to build these kind of applications. And uh, you know, like Node is one approach. That there seems to be a, a ton of energy around uh, exploring how to build these applications using Node on the back end and JavaScript something on the front end. Right. I'm hoping that everyone's going to figure out how this all works, and then I can jump in and learn how to do right. it properly. Uh, well, 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 speaking of trends, the um, let me see if I can find this uh, post real quickly while it's on my mind. Uh, actually, this was the the last useful thing I put, on, or the last thing I put on my blog a year ago, <laughs> which was talking about trends. And the, yeah, so I was saying, okay, great. There's this trend about server computation versus client computation. And I just said the trend is it goes back and forth. It's like, you know, first we had mainframes where everything happened in the centralized computing resource and your terminals were dumb. And then over the decades, it switched to, you had like Sun workstations and, you know, the network is the computer, right? You know, there's no mainframe, it's just workstations. And then it switched back to the servers do all the work with web servers. And now it's switching back to rich applications are where most of the most of the application is implemented. So it just, it goes back and forth. And I think we're deep into the swing to the client right now. And we, we probably have several more years of, of learning about how to build those things well. And then eventually somebody is going to figure out something that runs better centralized on a server and things will start shifting back the other way. So, yeah. The one thing that I think is interesting about the, this particular trend is that a lot of folks, they, they get all excited about the hype of a single page app. And in reality, it would take them twice as long and the code would be, you know, infinitely more reasonable if they would actually break it up. I mean, you can still have the rich front end, but you don't have to put everything in one big giant mess of JavaScript. We're seeing some interesting hybrids like, um, Basecamp new, right? The next or Basecamp next, I guess it's called. It uses primarily server-side stuff with the famous Russian doll caching is how they got everything working well there. But uh, but then uh, there's exception, right? Like I think that Calendar or something is backbone. They're, they're trying to, you know, use it where it makes sense, I guess. Yeah, and that's the approach that I favor, is use it where it makes sense. It, it is an interesting concept, right? I mean, it, that, you know... 
one of the things we're always concerned with is how fast can we build? Like I just got done, not how fast can we build, how fast can we serve pages? I just got done listening to the discourse episode you all did while I was away. And they, you know, he, he's, uh, Jeff is really concerned about how many milliseconds it takes to, to give those answers. And by offloading a lot of that processing to the client, that's a easy way to get to those low millisecond times. Right. Oh yeah, ab absolutely. I've been, I've been thinking that that's like probably the best advantage economically in the long run. You know, if you just look at a company like Google and how like they're by far their biggest expense is their power bill for the data centers running all of their servers. Google's so. an interesting counterexample, though, because in recent years that like I was just reading an article the other day about how they're dropping XMPP for in favor, you know, Google Talk in favor of Hangouts, basically. So they're, they're going from this kind of open, you know, talk to anything kind of approach to the more proprietary stuff, you know. Well, okay. I mean, that, that's a totally different kind of trend, but I, I think that the, that that's orthogonal to where the processing is happening. If it's on the server side or the client side, yeah, that's the, the, you know, if you look at Gmail, they took the traditional web mail and moved all of the business logic to, or like all the application logic and interaction to the, to the client, you know, into the browser. And that saves them a, a ton of it, basically what it comes down to is the economics of how many, you know, how many watts do they have to pay for to serve up the, the Gmail pages and Wait, putting so all, I'm, so I'm paying their power bill now. <laughs> That's right. Well, their advertisers are. Uh, okay. <laughs> so indirectly you are, but uh, yeah. So the, just the economics of it, you know, you know, every time you click on a page that costs Google a certain amount in power bills to run the server to, to render that page, if you can move that to the to, into the browser and reduce their expense, that makes their business more profitable. So I think just the economic realities of things when you operate at that scale are going to push pe people to more and more do stuff on the client side. But I, but I think, but James' point about was it Basecamp Next and all of the optimization that 37 Signals has done to make the server side economical. That's a reasonable approach too. Like there's not only one way to skin that cat. Is this um, client side thing being driven perhaps a lot by the uh, the proliferation of the mobile device? Um, you know, and the the now we have lots of scenarios where you're online, then you're offline, then you're online, then you're offline, right? So being able to do a lot of uh, things client side and then save up that communication for the server is maybe more advantageous now, right? There's definitely some of that, but I think a lot of it also ties into the fact that uh, our browsers are becoming more capable. I mean, with HTML5, there are a lot of different things that you can do with JavaScript in the browser that you really can't do in on the server. And and I think there's some of that, too. Um, I, I think it's a good mix of that. Yeah, gaming is, like, huge all of a sudden in the browser, right? Thanks to HTML5 and stuff. Right, and you can either manipulate it through SVG or you can actually get a canvas element on there and manipulate it uh, that way. A canvas element is just a bitmap that you manipulate through JavaScript. But yeah, I, it, it really comes down to a lot of this. Our browsers are much more capable now, and so we can do a lot of this awesome stuff in it. All right, did we talk that to death? Any more trends? Yep. In the past two years or so, there has been a proliferation of very short uh, developer training programs, like from the six week to the eight week to the 12 week to the six month. Um, and they're churning out 
junior developers of very varying ability. I know nothing of such things. (laughs) (laughs) That's a great one I didn't think of. So how how does it work, Katrina, since you have first-hand experience, how how well does it work? I only have experience from the longer uh, program type, I guess. So since we do, so I work at Jumpstart Lab, and we do a six-month developer training program. And since we're able to spend six months um, with these students, we can take people who have virtually no programming background whatsoever. And it works really well. We, the students are, have been working for four months now, and they have some really interesting sort of basic skills kind of across the board. We focused on Ruby first and then on Rails. Now they're going into more API integrations and performance and scaling and security and sort of SOA type applications. And so they're able to at least touch on a lot of subjects. In the shorter programs, I think that people need to have more of a more of a programming background. You have to have at least played with um, some type of programming so that you have a, a basic understanding of control structures and assignment and, and scope and things like that to actually make it through the program successfully. I, I can speak to that a little bit because I've been doing the Rails ramp-up course, which is me teaching people Rails, and, and there's definitely that element to it. I tell people that they it, it helps if they're familiar with HTML and CSS um, they don't have to know Ruby, but it really makes a difference in understanding what's going on. And and I don't go into a lot of the Ruby idioms and things when I teach the course because it is only eight weeks. And so I focus mainly on giving them what they need to know to write a basic Rails app and then offer to do any level of coaching that they need during those eight weeks. But yeah, it, it does help if they have some programming background, even though I'm willing to help them during that eight weeks. Sometimes it's just, you know, it takes a little bit more experience to do that. Is this being driven by an overall demand for more and more programmers? It seems like it. It seems like there there is a need for people who can shovel code, like basic websites, not the really difficult problems that GitHub and Amazon and Rackspace and all of these are solving, but the, the day-to-day small business or internal tools, or there's just such a huge need for, for people who can um, write code effectively and quickly, and and people are searching for Ruby developers all over the place and not necessarily finding them. So they're hiring people who write Java and C++ and C Sharp and Python who end up, of course, learning Ruby quite quickly. Like within three months, you you don't even realize that they haven't been writing Ruby all their life. Um, but there is definitely a demand for for more and more Ruby programmers. I think, I think another angle on that is that um, people are seeing the opportunity there because obviously the market for these courses to some extent, are the companies that want to hire Ruby people and can't find them, so they train them. But there's also the the uh, people out there who are looking to find a position or better their situation and figure out that there is opportunity there. And so they actually go and they they sign up for these classes and take them that way. I, yeah, I, I think that, that that's dead on. But th- there's, a, there's like a, a small related trend, I think, which is the... I'm not quite sure what to call them, the, the sort of, I guess, diversity expansion groups that have been forming around Ruby and Rails training. RailsBridge was the first of them, and now we have 
what like uh rails girls and black girls code and there's uh, also code 2040 i think in san francisco uh don't know that one <laughs> a, um, when Tom asked me the question about the trends I've been seeing, my first response was that I think we're getting more diverse. Mm -hmm. And in saying that, I didn't just mean uh, like getting women and, and other minorities into um, uh, programming. Actually, I meant that it, at conferences, I'm seeing keynotes from names I don't know and stuff like that. And I really love that trend overall. Like I, I always find it so um, great not to hear from, I, I mean, I, I love the people that I know and stuff like that, but also sometimes I feel like I could probably give their keynote at this point. You know what I mean? I've, I've heard their, their thoughts enough and I, I like hearing from a more broad group and, and new ideas, even, even in um my own talks when I'm giving speeches now at, at uh, Scottish RubyConf, I was sitting up on stage getting ready to talk and I was just looking around the room thinking, don't all of you people know there's some other great talks going on right now? <laughs> you know, like, why are you in here? <laughs> and uh, I, I think I, I like that, that there's, uh, you know, new, there's lots of new voices uh, spreading lots, lots of new ideas. And I, I love that. So, one other trend that I want to talk about just for a minute is uh, the trend toward uh, remote workers. It, it seems like that's becoming more and more common. Um, I've, I've talked to several people that don't live in the same uh, state or even in the same country as the company they're working for, and I find that fascinating as well. That's a great point. Yeah, I've been definitely picking up a trend of um, just more people doing it and becoming more normalized uh, in my, my interviews for the Wide Teams podcast. Uh, it's funny, I kind of hit a, started to get a lot more interviews with people that say, you know, start out with, well, I used to be working, you know, I used to have a two hour commute or something like that. Um, and I listened to your podcast for a while and I got myself a remote job. So it's kind of like, um, and second, then they don't second, have time to listen to the podcast. Well, yeah, anymore. that's, that's, always the, yeah, that's, that's the, the implication is, is always that they don't have to ha have time to listen to the podcast anymore. But yeah, I'm getting kind of a, I don't know what to call it, like a second generation or something of, you know, of interviews. And uh, there's definitely seems to be a more appreciation by a lot of companies that remote work really works. Well, and yeah. I, I think it ties back to what we were talking about before with um, more companies wanting to adopt Ruby, but not being able to find developers. And the ones that I see struggle the most are the ones that will not hire people who are working remotely. Yeah. What do you, what do you think the next version of remote work is going to be? Cause I, I think that, that, uh, remote work is in a couple of years, it's going to be so accepted that it's going to be pretty much the same thing. Working so, from I mean, space. I don't know. It's like, it could be something like that. It, you know, it used to be that you, that, you know, you were much more tied to the office schedule and, you know, then, then we got flex time and different commute hours and, so I, I, think, I, I just I just wonder what it's going to be in in 20 years or 50 years or whatever, when when telepresence and virtual reality and all that is just so integrated that sitting down at a table or a desk and pairing with someone doesn't really feel any different. Yeah, that's what I was going to say, is that there are still some communication roadblocks that for the most part, I think people figure out how to get around one way or the other, but they're still there and there's still issues that you have to deal with being a remote worker. 
Um, but at the same time, yeah, I think those are the next steps are, you know, lowering that barrier. I, I think you hit it dead on, you know, in 50 years, it, it's not going to make a difference. Technology wise, I, uh, I would love to see the day when, you know, we have like wireless technologies that let me do my remote work, you know, in the middle of a park somewhere with like my Google glass on to see, uh, my pairing partner's screen. Mm-hmm. Then I could be that crazy guy on a park bench that's talking to nobody. Or, or, or you could be that person in a bar who I, I think I'm having a, a nice intimate conversation with, but you're actually, <laughs> you're like, pro, you know, trying to solve the halting problem. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, who knows? We may have like ocular implants or something. And so, um, when you're pairing with somebody, you just switch modes in your head and then you see their screen. Nobody else can see what you're looking at. But, you know, you have that level of ability to see what they're seeing and, and, you know, communicate with them without necessarily even disturbing anyone else or anyone else even knowing that you're doing it. I, I'm sorry. I just love how we've gone off into science fiction here. Yay! <laughs> Bringing it back. I met this programmer at Scottish Rubicon named Jake, and uh, it was Fernand who introduced him to me because he brought him over and he thought, this guy's from Oklahoma. And so we, we started talking, but... He actually hasn't been in Oklahoma for a long time. He's been traveling all over Europe and and uh, the UK and stuff. And and uh, he he brought this up. He he basically just went into his employer and said, "Does it matter to you where I am when I do my job?" <laughs> and the employer said, "No." <laughs> so he left. <laughs> but yeah, I, I think that's the trend, right? Even the bigger guys, you know, Twitter when they were first formed, I, I know I had uh, some discussions with them. And uh, when they were first, you know, expanding and getting big, uh, they did not take remote workers. Um, and that was, uh, you know, at a time when that trend was changing, it was, it was a little iffy. But nowadays, I, I think, you know, for the right people, at least they do. Yeah. Yeah. Thoughtbot also had a no remote work uh, policy, and then they lost too many people. And then when one of their other best guys was going to move to Sweden, I think, they were like, uh, he was like, okay, I'm quitting because I'm moving to Sweden. And they were like, maybe we should rethink this. Yeah, yeah that- right. I mean, it's, there's, you know, there's lots of programmers out there. And I realize there's a, an especially large number of them in San Francisco. But there's also an especially large number of companies hiring programmers in San Francisco, right? So if you want to have a larger pool, you're going to have to take remote workers. Yeah. And, and so, the scenario that Katrina brought up is the situation that I see most often bringing companies into this is they have somebody that they deem as indispensable that, you know, my mom has some critical illness and I have to be there to take care of her and she lives across the country. So I have to move. I don't have any other choice. And so the company is faced with losing this person or giving them some other option. And so they wind up allowing them to work remotely. And then once they figure out that it can actually work, then they start saying, well, what other brilliant people can we bring in this way? Yeah. And these decisions, if they're made well, all come down to economics mm-hmm. because because people are running businesses. They need to be able to be profitable. So if they can get the value out of somebody uh, more cheaply by you know, if they can get more value from a programmer who's sitting three time zones away than they can from somebody who's coming into the office, then sure, that's a great decision for them to make. To me, it's so much more valuable to be like here in my house, in my comfortable office, choosing to work whenever I want to work and it's convenient for me, you know, and I, I do a lot more work and of higher quality here than I would in some office, you know. 
Yeah, I think that's true for a lot of people. Okay, so so here's here's a related trend, and I think that maybe even um, David Hansen was talking about this a couple years ago. But the the reversal of outsourcing, you know, we ten years ago everybody was outsourcing their development projects to India, right, or the Ukraine or someplace like that. That's a good point. Yeah, and that's driven by economics, like like I was just saying that. If you can create the same value for less cost, then that's a real win for your business. But if you look at tools like, like Rails or even just Ruby that make programmers more productive, then you can get that same sort of economic advantage by having a team that's good, that's good at those tools and is more productive than dealing with all of the uh, overhead of communicating with a team that's halfway around the world. I mean, so, so I mean, is this a, is this a trend people have been seeing? I I don't think I've been on a project in over five years that's wanted to outsource development work to India. It's I all have. about okay. Uh, it well to the Ukraine. Um, it turned out to be too difficult to communicate. So after six months, we stopped doing it and we did everything in house again. It became too expensive, like the communication itself became too expensive, even though the development work itself um, was far, far cheaper. Right. So, yeah, so that that's a more succinct way of saying what I was saying before. There's all this overhead in dealing with the re- with a remote team like that. And you can, if you can save money by just ha- you know, having a more efficient process locally, then that makes up for that. Yeah, the and and it's interesting because usually those outsourcing um, decisions are made because they look at your per hour in the U.S. and your per hour over there, and you know they they miss those trade offs that we're talking about here, mm-hmm. whether it's language barrier or skill level or something else. And, and I'm not saying that folks in Ukraine or India are are poor developers, but you do have to deal with some of these uh, uh, things that dissociate the important parts that you need to get across. So can I throw out one more trend before we call this quits? Sure. Tom, mm-hmm. Tom brought up a really interesting one to me. Uh, this was one of his, but he said that he sees a trend overall toward us learning more about uh, object orientation or better ways to build software or things like that. And he, he believes um, that you know, Ruby was almost kind of this rebel culture where we were, we were running away from all these things like Java and their heavy practices and stuff like that. And, uh, in the beginning, that allowed us to build software quickly and, and, uh, you know, move faster and stuff. And now we're reaching the point where we have 10 year old Rails applications and stuff like that that have been around, uh, for a while. And, and we have to start you know, weighing that, you know, how do we maintain these things? How do we keep them growing? How do we handle them in the future? And now maybe we're looking back and saying, you know, some of these ideas are bad. We should, we should bring them forward with us because they help us in certain ways. And he thinks there's a a trend of uh, kind of bigger interest in those things. What do you think? No, I think it's absolutely right. Just look at all of the talks that have been done over the past, again, a year, maybe 18 months about um, more object orientation in Rails, like putting Rails on top of your app instead of having your app be Rails. The other the other thing that I was going to point out was um, just look at how wildly popular the uh, practical object oriented development in Ruby was. 
and and then how much feedback we got on our episode on it where we went, <laughs> we went two hours talking about it because we were interested in it right yeah I, I think it is a trend that we're seeing you know people are trying to find better ways to build software even our i've said this at ruby midwest but even our our drama you know the fights we get into on the internet that we track are really two people arguing about the best way to build software you know that's not necessarily a bad thing right yeah so th this is a this is a trend uh i was i've been thinking of as rails plus and i, th I think i think Trichine, uh, katrina was saying something about that uh, just a moment ago but yeah so it's like service oriented architectures on rails Right. Well. When do we get to Rails plus plus? <laughs> That's the next one. <laughs> <laughs> Rails, the next generation. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so one of the things that um, that I realized when we were doing the episode on Martin Fowler's book on the patterns of enterprise application architecture is that the I, I think that a lot of those patterns we've seen them get reinvented over and over. So you know, act, uh, Active Record in Rails. A lot of people, uh, that was the only object relational mapping technology they knew of. And then they started running into the limitations of the active record pattern and wanting to decouple, uh, the persistence representation in the database from the, from the runtime objects, uh, behavior. And you end up with, you know, people trying to build data mappers and other sorts of, of uh, persistence patterns. And a lot of times, they ha they didn't have the benefit of experience like you know like Martin does or they haven't looked at his book so they they stumble across these other solutions so I, I think I think that's maybe a, a trend is sort of like rediscovering all of the old stuff <laughs> it's so much of this stuff has been done before and known about for a long time and we have uh, the population of of I think Ruby developers especially web developers are significantly self-educated and don't necessarily have a uh, formal education in computer science and know all of these. And, and even a good formal education in computer science misses a lot of this stuff anyway, because it's more like engineering than computer science. So it seems like there's a, a lot of rediscovery of old stuff going on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I guess yeah, that's but, just the but, nature of a field as it, yeah, but as it evolves. Yeah, and it's all related back to what we are talking about before with better ways of making software, better ways of doing object orientation, better ways of doing all these things. You know, we're going back to the, the kind of the canonical code uh, stuff. <laughs> I don't know. There, I Some days I look at the progress of, of computer software and think that the only real innovation that has come along in the last several decades is ways to more effectively use RAM. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I mean, I, I look at my, at this iMac, I have like 12 freaking gigabytes of RAM in this thing. And yeah, it does a lot of really cool stuff, but I used to do a lot of really cool stuff in like a couple dozen K of memory. <laughs> yeah. That's so, so by more effective ways to use RAM, it's more effective ways to use more RAM. Yeah, basically. <laughs> but now if you hit the minimize button, see the window bends and twists. It's really cool, Josh. <laughs> I know, but it's like, it, but I, I, I wonder about you know, like my, my personal effectiveness measured in the amount of RAM that I use. <laughs> I, don't, I, I don't think it's really increased. <laughs> I, think, I think the software has gotten really good at, at using a lot of RAM. 
Yeah, David <laughs> was telling me about the last PC he bought, which is pretty recent, and it has like 32 gig of RAM in it. Yeah, that's like, Jeez. oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> but it's gotten so inexpensive that you can just do it. Good thing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> anyway. We're drifting. Can we? Yeah. Get to say. Anyway, should we get to the picks? Sure. All right, Katrina. What are your picks? All right, on the topic of polyglotism, if that's a word, I am picking GopherCon, the first ever Go conference, which is going to be held here in Denver in April of 2014, and I have my ticket, and it's going to be awesome, and you should be there. That is cool. Wow. I thought it was a conference about an old part of the internet that nobody ever uses anymore. Well, I thought it was a conference for rodents. (laughs) Bobdi, what are your picks? I saw a really good talk video on Prologue by Aja Hammerly. I don't know if I'm pronouncing her name right. But uh, one of the best uh, short intro to a language talks I've seen. Uh, and, and that's a neat trick with Prologue because it's so far outside of the way we usually think about programming. So highly recommended. And for a not-so-programmy pick, I was looking over the list of picks recently and was very surprised to see that I had never actually picked my favorite beer. So. My go-to beer that I like to keep around all the time is Trogue's Hopback Amber Ale. Um, if you can find it, get it. It's just a great all-around, everyday beer. Awesome. James, what are your picks? Uh, yeah, I've got a few. So, uh, first of all, Avdi was just showing me this new library uh, before the show called Not that he wrote in a UGHT and uh, it's about the null object pattern, which I just got done speaking about in uh, at Scottish RubyConf that I like the null object pattern. And this thing is like the null object pattern on steroids. Uh, so it's really cool because you can make all kinds of null objects with uh, special behavior and conversions and, and all kinds of neat things. So a uh, really neat library that everyone should uh, check out if you're into patterns. And then the other one, kind of tech, kind of fun, I, I mentioned before that I went and saw, you know, all the Rubyists on my trip. Uh, I really enjoyed that. I even had um, two Rubyists, Chris and Sean, from the BBC email me while I was there. And I went and saw, uh, they, they gave me kind of a behind-the-scenes tour of the BBC while I was there, uh, you know, and told me what kinds of things they were working on with Ruby, which was really great. So I just have to stress this as a travel tip. If you're going to some cool place, Reach out to the Rubyists uh, in the area. They're generally great people, and and uh, you can at least have dinner with them and and uh, learn about cool things. Uh, and I, I find it very enjoyable to add to my vacations. And then for one totally fun pick, while I was uh, in Great Britain, I, I spent two weeks with my brother, who is the music guru extraordinaire. And uh, so he always tells me why everything I'm listening to is terrible and what I really should be listening to. And uh, I have to admit, he got me hooked on a few things. And uh, one of the artists he has me uh, hooked on is uh, called The Bands. It's called The Civil Wars. Uh, and it's this male-female uh, duo uh, that just does great harmonizing and really great music. So if you haven't listened to The Civil Wars, I recommend it. Those are my picks. So the BBC, is it bigger on the inside? <laughs> uh, no, well, it, it is huge. I mean, just in the amount of buildings they own. I only saw one, uh, their new, newer, uh, broadcasting headquarters. 
but it was really cool just to go in there and see them, you know, making the news and recording radio shows and stuff like that. It's really great, especially if you're a, you know, kind of British show nut like I am. So. So, so is watching them film, watching them record radio as interesting as watching people record podcasts? <laughs> um, it was, it was more interesting than you might imagine just because, um, they told us about things like, oh, this is the, the studio they use when they bring in live bands and stuff. And as I said, I, I had my brother, uh, the music geek tagging along. He's currently in college for production of music and stuff. So that was really cool to him and stuff. Nice. Josh, what are your picks? Uh, okay, so uh, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that the Golden Gate Ruby Conference CFP is open and uh, should be open for another week when this podcast uh, is posted. So it's, it's running through uh, midnight, June 13th Pacific time. So please send us proposals for speaking. Yay. Okay, gogoruko.com. It's just linked up there. And then my other pick is, um, is uh, in honor of Mike Moore. Uh, uh, Mike Moore is uh, the biggest brony that I know, and uh, so <laughs> so uh, I, I was uh, I was bored one night recently, and I decided to watch an episode of My Little Pony because Mike does such a good job of talking about it, <laughs> and uh, and it actually was uh, uh, kind of amusing. It's there's a lot more um, subtle grown up humor in the uh, cartoon than I was expecting. And it's, it's sort of like the new Bugs Bunny. You know, Bugs Bunny was the cartoon for grownups when, when many of us were kids. So, yeah. So my little pony friendship is magic. <laughs> it's, and it's on, it's on Netflix streaming. So you can just watch it there. It's, it's actually pretty funny. Uh. So, yeah. <laughs> you guys are my friends and you make everything magical. <laughs> okay. That's it for me this week. All right. Um, so I've got a couple of picks. The first one is it's a JavaScript library that I've been playing with. And I've had trouble in the past finding a good calendar UI for the web that I liked. And I found one and it's called Full Calendar. And it, it, it looks really good. It's very interactive. It's sort of like Google Calendar, but not entirely. And so uh, anyway, I really, I really like it. So I'm going to pick it. Another one that I'm going to pick, and I know this has been picked in the past, um, but I've been watching all of the Star Trek Next Generation shows on Netflix, and it's kind of fun to go back and watch it. And oh, I I remember that now. And stuff okay, there. okay, Chuck, if you're watching Star Trek Next Generation, are you playing along on the Fashion It So as you know Star Trek uh, Next Generation fashion blog? Uh, no, I should be, huh? You, you, you should be. Their, their commentary on the episodes is um, relevant. Okay, I'll check it out. Um, Can I sneak in one pick related to yours? Go ahead. <laughs> I'm actually reading right now um, The Physics of Star Trek by Lawrence Krauss. Uh, and it's, it's really kind of a neat book because it goes through, you know, all the different things you see uh, a lot in Next Generation, but it does touch on the other... Uh, series as well about, um, you know, what's an inertial dampener? How does it claim to work? Does that work? Could we make an inertial dampener? You know, all that kind of stuff. And would a tractor beam work? Uh, so it's kind of a fun way to learn some physics if, uh, uh, if you're enjoying Star Trek. Nice. So my last pick is uh, another, it's actually a Rails app that I am using to manage uh, some of my Git projects, and that is GitLab. 
It's kind of a GitHub clone. It's not as nearly as fully featured, obviously, but uh, it's self-hosted and it's very nice. Kind of. It's almost exactly GitHub, right? Like, doesn't it look like GitHub? Even? It does. It looks a lot like GitHub. Yeah, it GitHub has a lot more features to it, but uh, for for a lot of the features that I use most commonly, GitLab has them. So, when I'm using it, I always wonder: Are these two people still friends? <laughs> It's funny because GitLab, um, all of the instructions and everything for you to get it are in the README in the GitLab uh, project on GitHub. So <laughs> anyway. Um, that, that, that's like the textbook definition of irony. Yes, I it's guess. Awesome. But uh, the, the main thing for me is that I have clients that want uh, private repos and uh, things like that. I've got projects that I don't necessarily, you know, need to have on github that i don't want to pay for a private repo for and so i'm hosting so, it myself so so is the, this is uh, i guess taking the place of gitorius as the roll your own git server yeah solution. i looked at gitorius and gitosis and mm-hmm. i yeah the, this this is just nice because it has a nice graphical interface on it so it has the github interface <laughs> yeah it has it has a nice github graphical interface on it are, are you trying to tell us something james I'm just saying, <laughs> seriously, <laughs> when you use it, it's a little shocking. <laughs> yeah, it does. It looks a ton like GitHub. So anyway, those are my picks. Yeah. So anyway, we'll uh, we'll wrap this all up. We'll catch you all next week.